Diane Warren is the author of three books of short fiction and three plays. Her most recent collection, A Reckless Moon, was a Global Mail Best Book of the Year, and her play, Serpent in the Night Sky, was shortlisted for a Governor General's Award for Drama in 1992. In 2004, she won the Marion Engel Award for a woman writer in mid-career. Warren lives in Regina, Saskatchewan. Welcome to the Bibliophile. Thanks. Congratulations. Yeah, thank you. For Cool Water. Yeah, it's been fun. What, the writing of it? Yeah, Ottawa. <laughs> Not all this good plot in Ottawa. What about the writing of it? Oh, the writing. Yeah. Yeah. It was fun. It's both fun and hard work, and it depends what point you're at in the book. When I was imagining things, it's just a pleasure, you know, to be able to do that. And then you still have to impose the, you know, the rigor and the structure and all the rest of it, which is hard work. But the imaginative part of writing it was definitely fun. Creating these yeah. interesting characters. Yeah, playing with them, you know. Yeah. What if? Playing God. I guess you could describe it as that. I think I had a student ask me once what it's like, and I and I said it like I remember as a kid, I loved playing, building roads and building farms and creating an environment. And, you know, like all those little farm toys. You know, in a way, it is like that in your in your adult mind. Perhaps you could give us just a quick idea of what we're getting into here. In the book, I know it's hard to do because there's so many characters. The novel is set in the small town of Juliet, Saskatchewan, which is very arid, southwestern part of the province. It's a fictional town. It's dry and the farmland has been described as questionable, you know, going back to Palliser and the Triangle. And uh, I really wanted to write a contemporary novel about the West, so that was kind of foremost in my mind, I guess. It's not nostalgic or romantic. I grew up with a lot of romantic ideas about the West, so it was to avoid that, while still keeping in mind that those kind of myths and romantic ideas are a part of, of what we think. Well, so, it starts off in a very romantic way, yes, doesn't it? Yes, exactly. The book starts off a hundred years ago with a kind of a legendary horse race, but it's a brief part of the book. So my intention in doing that was, was exactly that, to say this is kind of an idea about the romantic past of the West, mm -hmm. and then it jumps forward a hundred years to where we are. There's a young character named Lee in the book that traces the path of that hundred-mile horse race today and in his contemporary reality. Yeah, he serves as a way of pulling it all together, yeah. the past and the, the present and the future, yeah. too. Yeah, and he's yeah. a reflective kind of character. He's mm -hmm. alone for most of the book, whereas the other characters are always like running into each other and all kinds of stuff is happening in their lives. Lee is kind of taking this guilty pleasure of a horseback ride, 100 miles. You use the word loping a lot. Mm-hmm. Loping. Loping. And a horse lopes. Yeah. Yes. What, what exactly do you mean by that word? Oh, what, you mean like in technical terms? Yeah. When a horse lopes, it's like a slow gallop. Okay. So it's a comfortable gait for a horse. It's not a like a hard gallop. I might use that word to describe the novel itself. That's interesting, yeah. I yeah. would say that's true. As opposed yeah. to galloping or yeah. being anything sort of dramatic. Yeah. It has to do with pacing. You talk about Lee. <laughs> it always happens. Yeah. It always happens, wherever I go. Yeah magnet for yeah. for noise but yeah. anyway you talk about lee being alone and yet so much of the interest in the book has to do with how various couples interact i thought of particularly the fact that you use scandinavian norwegian surnames quite prominently i thought of ibsen he used to 
paint middle-class life in small towns mm -hmm. and he focused on character and psychological conflict. No, I was not thinking of Ibsen, but I can tell you why I did that. My own uh, family background is pretty much all Irish on both sides of the family. Yeah. And my grandparents settled in Saskatchewan, so there was a lot of uh, settlement from the British Isles in Ireland. But I wanted this book to not be about my own family. I have a book, I don't know if you have it, the Encyclopedia of Saskatchewan, and there's a really interesting map where it shows pockets of settlement, where people settled from different countries, like there was huge Eastern European settlement. There are a couple of pockets of Scandinavian settlement, and I just kind of chose that to be something that was believable but very different from my own family background. And I think a lot of that had to do with I didn't want the novel to be nostalgic. I wanted to be able to distance myself in a way from my own family background because there are so many attachments to those years when my grandparents homesteaded an attachment to that piece of land. I really wanted to avoid that. Well, you did. I mean, certainly there wasn't a feeling of nostalgia. It was more grim, a sort of a, a calm melancholy to it. Would you say that was accurate? Yeah. One of the, and again, I think it has to do with this Norwegian, Northern European angst, this approach to relationships, depicting relationships that aren't open. These people don't have the language to communicate their emotions mm -hmm. with adequately, mm -hmm. particularly Willard and Miriam. Mm -hmm. uh, maybe you can tell us yeah. who these people are. Try not to be too fond of any of your characters because you always want to keep that distance and be able to approach them honestly, but I was particularly fond of Willard and Marion. These were my uh, favorite. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In Saskatchewan from those years, there were a lot of men who didn't marry, and I think yeah. it was just purely because they, they lived out on the prairie. They never they worked all the time. They were almost frighteningly shy, yeah. and their self-esteem was... Yeah. I mean, this is yeah. Willard. He's the brother of Ed, who had married Miriam, yeah. Yeah. and they all lived together, and yeah. then Ed died. Yeah, uh, Willard's desperately in love with Marion, and but doesn't, doesn't know show how it. to say it, and also can't believe that she might, you know, be in love with him as well. He and just, she is. And she goes in the middle of the night and comes up to his door, and he knows she's standing yeah. there, and he's thinking she's going to come in and say, I'm leaving, Yeah. when really, probably thinking she wants to go in, in there and say that how much she loves him. Yeah, and I think the reader knows that right from the beginning, that that's what's going on. So you're sort of cheering for Willard, I think, you know. Well, it's a very yeah. good tension. You know, they're getting closer and they're starting to talk a little bit, yeah. and then he figures there's no way that she cares for me. I'm yeah. going off and I'm going to have lunch at the diner. Yeah. What you did as a writer there was there was tension, anticipation. It's like a lot of dramas where you keep wanting something to happen and it doesn't yeah. happen. That kind of yeah. keeps you going. Yeah. Maybe, and I, but I also think that's really Saskatchewan. Maybe it's small town everywhere. I mean, I only know small towns in Saskatchewan. People say what they mean in a really roundabout way. The conversations don't directly get to the point. Like, and I love know, you. Yeah. And everybody <laughs> jokes about how people talk about the weather in Saskatchewan. You know, part of it's because the weather's pretty dramatic there and there's lots to talk about. But I think the other part of it is it's part of the conversation and the way in to what you really have to talk about. You don't go there directly. Right. It takes a while to build up to that. Yeah. But yeah. in this case, it never happened. Speaking of which, there was a good review in the Saskatoon Star Phoenix that referred to Robert Graves' poem, The Cool Web. 
and I do not know that poem. I looked the poem up. One of the lines in it is, a cool web of language winds us in, a retreat from too much joy or too much fear, a tangle into which adults wind themselves, insulating themselves from a way to tell honestly about sensual experience. So, wow. that works with yeah, you? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Hmm. The other connection I made reading the book was with the Coen brothers. I don't know if you've ever yeah, seen oh any yeah, of their movies. Yeah, fan of their Fargo. Yeah, for and, sure. Yeah. And there's typically, uh, you know, some pretty quirky dudes in, in yeah. those films. Yeah. And uh, they do tend to be rural or yeah. small town. Yeah. And well, I think the Coen brothers go particularly in some of their films like way over the top with those kinds of characters almost into the area of farce like if you think of Fargo and there's no murders in your uh... no but if you, if you think about some of those scenes in Fargo like the scene where he where he buries the money in the snow and sticks the is it the scraper the ice scraper sticks it in the snow as as the marker <laughs> for where he's where he's gonna find this money again yeah. and then the camera pulls back and you just see like miles of snow in the ditch and fence posts, and like, you know he's never going to find that money. Right. Could have been Saskatchewan yeah. in the winter. Well, yeah, it was pretty close. It was yeah, North Dakota. Yeah. The reason that I go there is because of Willard again and this crazy camel that he gets yeah. as a tourist attraction, yeah. Antoinette. Yeah. Did you go with Marie Antoinette? No, the name uh, just kind of popped into my okay. head, Juliet Antoinette. Sure. That's a connection there. But where that came from was my thinking about landscapes as exotic. I've always thought that deserts were like exotic landscapes. So then I was thinking about, is it exotic if it's in your own backyard? The books that are referred to that Lee has, that he, he likes when he's a kid, that are the, the kind of old, really old-fashioned, not very politically correct, geographical books. And I have a set of those old books. Um, that were in my husband's family. And so I looked through them for all the early Royal Geographical Society kind of explorer anthropologists mm. about what they said about desert landscapes and and some of the quotations that are in Lee's scrapbook either come from or are very close to the quotations in those books. Desert people are a hardy race, that sort of thing. And then I was applying those to maybe stereotype ideas that people have of Saskatchewan people or homesteaders or that sort of thing. And that's kind of where the camel came from, is, okay. is like kind of drawing a parallel. Although, I mean, the camel's just kind of a light moment in the novel, although the character Lee is very upset when the camel disappears. but. So I, that's what I was trying to do there, was just trying to draw in the sort of weirdly exotic into into a landscape that's really familiar and, it, and is really just your own backyard. Yeah, although again, it is desert-like. You call the uh, the restaurant, the cafe, the... The oasis, yeah. yeah. And there are active dunes in southwest Saskatchewan, which is pretty amazing when mm -hmm. you go out and, and look at them and you think, I can't believe this that is I'm here. just down the road. Speaking of sand, there's another poem that uh, you actually acknowledge in the back of the book. Uh, it's Ozymandias mm -hmm. by Shelley. Yeah. The lone and level sand stretch far away. Perhaps you can uh, connect the dots for us. What I was thinking, again, it, it goes back to the 100-year 
hundred years later, the kind of idea of the early years of the settlement, what we call settlement in Saskatchewan. Obviously, there were people there before us. By us, I mean like, you know, the descendants of the homesteaders, people mm-hmm. like me. But there was this, the dream of the Dominion Lands Act for people like my grandfather that were able to move to Saskatchewan and homestead and like, you know, I, my mom's told me stories about how hard he worked to, you know, get that land plowed under and and not build an empire. I mean, my my family's not not like that, but but definitely build a farm that would go from generation to generation mm-hmm. and be the Taylor farm. There's a real optimism. Yeah, oh yeah. And after many, many years of hard work, there was some success and it took a long time before before anybody made any money at all. You know, for all the years that my mom was growing up there, they lived in a little two-room, um, basically a shack. What I was thinking with the Ozymandias was somebody else coming upon that, like when you when you come upon the deserted, because there are a lot of them now, there are deserted homesteads. So either people that didn't make it a long time ago, like maybe even during the 30s, mm-hmm. and went back to Ontario or wherever they came from, or maybe family farms that have gone out of the family or have been taken over by a larger corporate farm or whatever. And so then you, you look at those structures. That's kind of where the, the Ozymandias connection came from. The poem refers to yeah. the statue of the emperor who was full of hubris. Yeah. And look what time now and sand Now it's buried in sand, exactly. Well, I guess the point that I wanted to make was really this nothing's permanent. There was a certain vision that went along with the Dominion Lands Act of farming settlement of southern Saskatchewan, well, a hundred years later. Well, sorry, what was that? Did they oh, give, that, they that gave was, you a certain amount of yeah, land? Yeah, that, yes, they did. It was a, I believe it was a quarter section of land, and what you had to do was move there, and they called it Prove It Up. I can't remember how much time it was, but I think it might have been within the year you had to plow under a certain number of acres, and then at the end of a, another period of time, you had to have a structure on it, and then once you had done those things, the land was yours. yours. There was another amendment to it that allowed a farmer to get another quarter se- quarter section for the oldest son. And my grandfather did that, so he, through his homestead, he had two quarter sections. But now it's a hundred years later, and the province is a very different place, and nothing, nothing stays the same. Yeah, how is it different? I mean, I'm not an agronomist, you know, so <laughs> I'm no expert on, on that. What I see that I can sort of relate to in my own family is that it was my grandfather's dream of this family farm. And it's not necessarily the dream of the descendants two or three generations later. Not, you know, not the same dream. There are other dreams, but at the same time, we've grown up with this story mm-hmm. of how hard these ancestors worked yeah. to get there. So you almost feel, well, guilty at abandoning that well, dream? Well, you know, for the very first time, I believe it was two years ago, one of my uncles sold two quarter sections that would have been in my grandfather's original land, not the homestead quarters, but other quarters that he had acquired over the years. And it was really traumatic in our family for that land to be sold. We always called it the King Place, which was because I believe it had been in the original homestead of somebody named King. And that's the other thing that happened, is that when the people gave up, 
for whatever reason their homesteads, then that would be acquired by another homesteader. Not by big agribusiness. No, and so this would go like way back to maybe the 20s. And then it would always, at least in our family, it always carried the name of the person that homesteaded. So that was the king place. You know, there were a lot of us in the family that hated to see that go. And it, it's for reasons of nostalgia, I think, which is kind of what I was trying to avoid in the novel. And that draw is yeah, there. Yeah. It's something that, that yeah. you're grappling with. Yeah, a desire, I guess, to honor your ancestors. But nothing stays the same. And then the sand, if we come back to the sand, that's a very fragile landscape. And it's really the, the roots of the grasses that are holding that sand in place. Mm. And if it gets overgrazed by cattle, or like there's lots of gas and oil in southern Saskatchewan now, those gas and oil trucks go through there and tear up the roots, and the sand spreads. So the grasslands, the it's sand clear. encroaches on the, on the grasslands. So that's again another connection to the Ozymandias poem where the, the statue gets basically buried. Well, yeah, shattered, I think the word used. Yeah. And it talks about the ancients. Yeah. I really like that word too. Yeah, the ancestors, I guess, or the people that came before. I'm speaking with Diane Warren, the author of Pool of Water, that has just won <laughs> the Governor General's Literary Award for uh, English fiction. Now, there's the connection with the song Pool of Water. Which my dad had on a vinyl 45. What was the hook there for you? It was like this. the song is about somebody... Well, it's a little hard to tell exactly what the song is about, but I imagine it about being about somebody who, that's lost. So when Lee is out in the sand hills, you know, following the path of this 100-mile horse race, and it's a really hot day, and he didn't actually set out to ride the whole 100 miles, so he's got no water with him, and he finds spots along the way where he can get a drink. There's like an old well in a schoolyard, and he comes across an old couple, and he stops and has lunch with them, and then I think there's a, a, a little... Uh, campground, there's a pump, you know, so he has, he finds places to, to for water along the way, and so to me, that was symbolic, I guess, of a, a kind of survival. Southwestern Saskatchewan is a pretty hostile landscape, you know, in the summer, it's hot and dry and not very good for farming, and in the winter, it's 30 below, and the farms in that particular part of the country, farms and ranches are far apart, and uh, yeah, it's, it's hostile. I didn't set out to put any references to water, and in fact that wasn't the original title of the book. But when I read through it, you sort of find like all the, all the places where people go for some kind of relief or sustenance. S searching for that. Yeah. He basically throws an, an old saddle onto this horse that had yeah. showed up. Yeah. This wonderful sense of breaking free. Yeah. Would that be a theme? Yeah, absolutely, because he's, Lee is a character who's who's just inherited he's a successful this, farm. There's responsibility. Yeah, yeah, inherited it from people that, his adoptive parents, and they might be relatives, but you're not really sure how, what the connection was. He just feels the responsibility of that and wanting to do right by these people who raised him and were so good to him. And so he's feeling the burden of that dream. So yeah, when he heads out on this horse, it is a day of freedom. And there are references to work, you know, that he should be working. Because that's the other thing. If you live on a farm and it's a work day, you know, the weather's good and all the rest of it, everything else stops to get that job done.
and he's actually being slothful by wasting a good day on this ride through the sandhills. Yeah, there is this sense of guilt, isn't there, yeah. that Calvinists... And I, I think that that is present in probably all occupations where your work is dependent on land or water and weather. When the day is right, you don't waste it. I love this line here. The book is scattered with pleasant humor. Words spread like chicken pox. Oh, <laughs> somebody said to me that that was the first point when they were reading that they knew that the book was going to have a level of something other than naturalism or some humor. Yeah, and some levity. Yeah. Yeah. I had never really thought of that before. But it's on page four. When I read that, I thought, okay, good. It's going to be some fun phrasing here. And one of the things that I like, too, is I'm referring to the very first section, the distance, which describes this race that took place a hundred years ago. There's this brash, young, loudmouth who's challenged by an older, more reserved, and more popular cowboy. Yeah. The brash one wins. Yeah. You, you talk about it here, but I wouldn't mind if you could read it. Here we are. A malaise settled over the farm families, one they didn't quite understand. They weren't sure why they were waiting. They ate their picnics quietly, feeling strangely depressed about Henry Merchant's absence. They kept looking to the west, watching for a horse and rider to come into view. They wanted to see Henry Merchant cross the finish line, as though doing so would punctuate a disappointing day with something good. After they'd finished eating and he still hadn't arrived, they concluded that he'd given up and gone home to the ranch that there was nothing to do but pack their picnic things and leave. They said their goodbyes and headed off in various directions to homesteads that suddenly felt lonely and tentative. They were, all of them, somber, not because of money lost, but because they'd been so certain. This was a determined lot who badly wanted to believe in the future. It was disconcerting to be wrong. Yeah. That, that resonated throughout the whole book for me. Yeah, I think it did for me too. Yeah, I think that that is exactly kind of what was on my mind. Now, what was it? Is it a, it's optimism that was sort of stoic? I think it's that. And again, it has so much to do with weather and your complete dependence in that business on something that is completely beyond your control. Right. So, like this year in Saskatchewan was a really good example because, you, you know, you, you hear people, it, if the rain doesn't come at the right time, nothing happens. Well this year we had all this rain, the crops were looking fantastic. Nobody could believe it. It was like, you know, it was so green. Well it just kept raining. It didn't stop. So the crops didn't ripen and, and nobody was able to get their hay off. And, uh, and then it just turned from this incredible farming optimism into a farming disaster. And that I think is just part of the life in a farming community. They were certain that this young guy was going to lose, right, in the race. Yeah. They wanted yeah. to teach him a lesson, yeah. right? Yeah, and that was right, so that's what was going to happen. But it didn't. And I think for a lot of people who came in those years, it didn't work out. I mean, we know about the people like my grandfather that stayed, but there were all kinds of people in those early years that left, you know, that were there for five years or ten years, or maybe they weren't even there for a year. Yeah. And it was like, you know, I'm getting out of here. This is, you know, the first winter to them in. But they, they so badly wanted that dream to come true. And yet, I guess as you say, one of the toughest things is that there's so much that's beyond their control. 
So they're there, they're fighting it out. They embody resilience, determination, frugality, and happiness against all the odds. Is that right? I think that's true. If you go to a like a function in rural Saskatchewan or I mean again I guess I'm talking about my own family because I don't know if this is true of everyone but there's a lot of humor a yeah. lot of wry humor wry and it's sort yeah. of fighting isn't it yeah. it's, it's, it, I grew up in Saskatchewan and I came down east down east to Ontario yeah. and a friend of mine was also from Saskatchewan and we went to university in Kingston yeah. and other people couldn't really get a handle on how yeah. we cut each other down all the time yeah. That was a brand of humor. Yeah, yeah, I think that's true. So that's a part of it too. And then the other thing that is sort of connected to what we're talking about, going back the hundred years, I was thinking about, you know, the meta- metaphor of sand and change. And if you think about like how the province of Saskatchewan changed in such a short time as a place where nomadic peoples lived. That's the other desert connection and there's some references to nomadic lifestyle, which is what the Cree were in Saskatchewan. In the scope of things, it was almost overnight that that ended. They went from nomadic to domesticated. Yeah, just like that. So then you have to ask the question, which was the more successful? way of life mm. and the Cree had a successful nomadic way of life there for hundreds of years and now a hundred years in to the settlement era we're still asking the question in certain parts of the province was this really them not even thinking of what it what it did to the Cree people and the displacement but w- was this good for this landscape were these dreams uh, realistic yeah and particularly in the what we think of as the Palliser Triangle, where it's so dry. And again, I'm not an agronomist, but I, I think that these are questions that you know you should ask when you live there. Isn't that a big part of what literature and fiction yeah. is all about? It's coming at problems. Through the lives of the people who, yeah. who live there, rather than, well, no, some nonfiction writers do that too, but there are factual or economic or agriculture books about these same questions. My approach is through the lives of the people who live there. In closing, there's a couple of things. First of all, what are you trying to get at? What do you want from this? Mm -hmm. The first thing for me and my approach to fiction is that it's really important to me that I care about the people that I write about. Let's say around these questions of change and um, relationship to land in this century, these individual people have not, let's say, committed any crimes or moral sins, but those questions still have to be asked. You you started off by saying you have to care for the characters. Yeah. Because when you're thinking about any kind of topic, it's the way that it impacts humans, I suppose, Yeah. Yeah. that's most affecting. And it's a collective experience. One of the reasons that I chose to write about the town of Juliet, say, and not just the character Lee Torgerson, is because this relationship to land and, say, 21st century issues in this part of the country is a collective kind of experience, and there isn't any one answer. One character, to me, is not adequate for examining that. When I very first started writing this, it was going to be just Lee's story, and then wasn't feeling adequate because then all of a sudden that character would become representative of an experience that's really too diverse for one character. So that's how all these kind of interwoven stories came about. 
But back to what I said about caring about the characters, it was also important to me that I not condemn, I guess, any one character for decisions that were made by ancestors. They would dealt that That's that what hand. you inherited, whether it's a good thing or a bad thing, going back to that period when this novel started. Finally, and I, and I wonder if this is a comment on the, a Saskatchewan character, and that is that a lot of these people did seem out of touch with both themselves and their own desires. Mm-hmm. Well, that's an interesting question. There's a life that goes on in a small community, and it's, it's almost an ecosystem in a way, but the world is, has changed so much in obvious ways the availability of travel and the internet and cell phones and you know the young people in this novel are all connected but I think that the older people it would have been easier for them to sort of seal themselves it's not the same for the people that say like the daughter that's just graduating from high school in this novel and some of her friends are are heading off to university and so it's kind of like the seal is being broken, which signifies another huge change. What do you mean the seal? The seal well, you're, you're asking there? about, yeah, I mean, I guess it works in a couple of different ways. There's the seal around people's emotions, but there's also the seal around life in that community, like a kind of a self-sustaining life mm. in a smaller community where everything that you need is in that small community. And that isn't the case anymore. So it's like the boundaries around that community are gone. People are spreading out and, you know, dis- discovering another world, which in previous generations would have been not nearly as common. It was more claustrophobic, wasn't it? Yeah. Y- your life was, was in that community. Yeah. Period. Yeah. But it's just not true anymore. It sounds to me like you're saying that this isn't a bad thing because no. it's a good thing to open that seal up, the, the yeah. one that's keeping people in, in themselves. Yeah, people like Willard. Yeah, well, you know, it's pretty obvious, but there's good and bad in everything, and it's just the way it is. Yeah. That this is life now. The province, I mean, it's not just me. Everybody talks about how Saskatchewan is changing economically and development has gone crazy and... Some of it is development of farmland as the cities sprawl. The population's increasing, and apparently people that have left are coming back. I haven't seen the actual numbers on that, but that's in the news a lot. When I was writing this novel, I just sort of had the sense of everything moving and everything changing. And there is a lot of movement in the novel, like nobody sits still. Well, and also the wind and the sand. The sand, yeah, exactly. Well, Saskatchewan's doing pretty well these days. They I think say. they, uh, yeah. it's in terms of the arts uh, community, they, yeah. I mean, you've won this, and uh, the nonfiction yeah. winner comes from yeah. uh, Saskatchewan as well. Yeah, and the children's literature English text book was uh, published by a Saskatchewan publisher. Oh, so. excellent. Yeah. And uh, Saskatchewan Rough Riders are in the yeah, Grey Cup. Yeah, in the Grey Cup. Everybody's excited <laughs> about that. <laughs> Well, thank you so much for uh, sharing. That was an interesting conversation. I've been speaking with uh, Diane Warren, who is the author of three books of fiction and three plays, and this is your first novel. First novel, First yeah. novel, yeah. even though it really is a sort of a, a series of short stories that are put together. They're not really short stories because they don't each have the structure that would make them work as a short story. They are a number of different character stories. 
So it was always a novel to me. It was never linked stories. Because if they were truly linked stories, each would stand alone. And they don't stand alone. They're all dependent on each other. To me, it's just longer. Because my short stories were getting longer and longer. And with this, I just, just kept going. Great. Well, thank you so much for keeping going. Yeah. Thank and you. please keep on going. Yeah. And again, the, the name of the book is uh, Cool Water. And uh, I've been speaking with Diane Warren. Thank you. Thank you.